You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. It feels like the older I get, the more I learn, the more I grow, the more that I experience, I find myself surprised by the power of story the power of storytelling, the power that a story, a narrative has to shape our reality. I think I'm particularly surprised by the stories that have shaped me that I didn't even know were at work. The stories that have shaped me even without my knowing, maybe even in spite of myself. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, Some of you may be aware, maybe others suspecting, Maybe some have have no idea that Megan and I are expecting our first child. Yeah, thank you. Uh, We just recently announced that we're going to be expecting a little baby girl in December, a little Christmas present. So naturally, what's the question that everyone at this point is asking? Have you guys thought of a name? Do you have a name picked out for your little baby girl? The answer to that question is no, but it's got me thinking about the power of a name and the story that's in a name. If you were here several weeks ago when I preached last, you remember me saying that I am the son of a Methodist pastor, and both Methodists and Nazarenes have their theological roots in the same holiness holiness tradition and the teachings of the theologian John Wesley. Now, as good Methodists, My parents named me after John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley. Like his brother, Charles Wesley was a theologian, but he was also a hymn writer, a poet, a pastor. My name is Wesley Charles Reese. And my name might not inherently seem like a story, but I grew up knowing that my namesake was a musician, a poet, a theologian, a pastor, and because of this, I have always felt an innate responsibility for there to be congruence, harmony, between my name and my life. I felt as though if my parents felt strongly enough that my identity should be in some part bound up in the identity of this man, then I should probably find a way to live into that identity. This, to me, is an incredibly powerful story, one that has and likely always will shape the trajectory of my life. The funny thing about this story is that it is one that I did not choose. I had no say in bringing myself into existence, and I was given no control over what my name would be. In a sense, my name is a story that happened to me, despite me. The story of my name reminds me that I am not my own. I am not self-made. I have been taught to navigate the world by a story that I did not choose. Our reality is constructed by stories, by words. And these three words, Wesley Charles Reese, are words that have come to shape me. We Christians are also a people of the word. 
We confess that this word not only shapes our reality, forms our reality, we confess that this word is the basis of our reality, right? This word is reality. The Gospel of John starts, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. This word, this story, is a story that is shaping us. The word is a story that we are being written into. The word may even be a story that has its way with us, that goes before us, that captures us and wrestles us into a far greater story than the one that we'd like to think that we've written for ourselves. So this morning, as we continue in our sermon series, Sunday School Stories, And as we wrestle with the text, we do well to remember that this story is strange. That this story is not so much the story of humanity, but the story of a God that is desperately reaching out to his creation. This word is often surprising. It's often intrusive. This word reminds us that the powers of our little kingdoms are not the powers of the kingdom of God. As Jonathan reminded us last week, this word tells us of a kingdom whose citizens are blessed in their poverty, happy in their mourning. The world of the scriptures, the world of the word, is a strange world. And as we read our text this morning, I want to help us see this gospel, this good news, through the lens of this odd world. So let's read our text this morning. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter four, verses one to 11. And I'd invite you to stand with me as we read from the gospel this morning. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you were the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash a foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. You may be seated. I want to start by just recognizing that this is a strange story. In this passage, we, we witness the manifest God in the person of Jesus going toe-to-toe with a character who appears to be the manifest Satan, the devil, the opponent, the adversary. In my personal devotions, I've begun asking myself the question, what does this story communicate about God And what do we learn about his kingdom, his behavior, 
his being. And right out the gate, we learn some pretty odd things. Matthew writes, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. This is odd. What kind of God would lead us into the wilderness, into the barren and desolate places that we might be confronted with and tested by the adversary? I'm starting to get the sense that we might be talking about a dangerous God here, a God that might be prone to making his people a little uncomfortable. But before we go any further, I want to have a brief conversation about interpretation and translations. And I'm going to start by putting all of my cards on the table. Some translations of this passage use the word temptation, while others use the word tempting, the temptation of Jesus or the testing of Jesus. In this context, I don't think the word temptation is all that helpful, and I want to tell you why. When we think of temptation, we often associate temptation with appetites. In this paradigm, we might be tempted to eat too much ice cream, right? The temptation is to overindulge. One might be tempted to alleviate anxiety by reaching for a bottle of booze. One might be tempted to looking at pornography on the internet. This kind of temptation is the giving of ourselves to the whims of our appetites. But it seems that this passage has less to do with the temptation of Jesus' appetites and more to do with the testing that happens when he is led into the wilderness. And furthermore, there's no biblical precedent for God tempting anyone to sin in the Bible. The book of James actually makes this quite clear. He writes, no one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desires, being lured and enticed by it. The testing that Matthew is talking about here has more to do with how we are being refined, how we are being prepared. And I think that this is the point that Matthew is trying to make. Something that the gospel writer Matthew does consistently in the narrative of his gospel is draw the reader back to the story of Israel. In the first century of the church, there were many Gentile, that is, non-Jewish converts, but there are also many Jews who were becoming followers of Christ. And Matthew, an Orthodox Jew, is writing specifically to help guide his Jewish readers and disciples in what it means to be the people of God in this new kingdom that Christ has established. Much of his writing runs parallel to the stories of Abraham, Moses, and Elijah, the pillars of the Jewish faith. So when he writes, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished, his Jewish readers are immediately thinking about how Jesus is reenacting the same story of Moses leading Israel into the wilderness. Like Israel, Jesus is led into the wilderness by God, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And in this wilderness experience, Jesus, like Israel, experiences testing. 
He must learn what it is to rely on God in God alone. Matthew is making an explicit parallel between Jesus in the wilderness and Israel in the wilderness. And the temptation that Israel often faced wasn't necessarily the giving of themselves over to their appetites. Rather, it was not trusting God to do the things that God promised he would do. And where Israel so often failed to trust, we see Jesus as a kind of new Israel. He does the things that Israel could not. I also find it interesting that this wilderness experience happens right after the baptism of Jesus. The text reads, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. And then what happens next? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. The Spirit of God that bestows Jesus the authority of sonship to God and calls him the beloved is the same Spirit that then leads Jesus into the desert in order to be tested by the adversary. How are we to reconcile that this God that in one moment calls him beloved would take him in the next moment into the barren lands of the wilderness. What does God's commissioning of the beloved look like? It looks like being led into the wilderness. And we are reminded that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and after 40 days of fasting, he is confronted by the adversary, the devil, and this is what the text says. The tempter came to him and said to him, if you were the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why not? Why not turn the stones to bread? When you think about it, it's hardly a temptation. It's almost more like a reminder. Hey, it seems like you've been without food for a while. I bet you're pretty hungry. You have the power of the divine. Just turn these stones to bread and end the needless suffering. You can conjure up the power that you need to end your own discomfort. After all, in just a few chapters, Jesus will essentially do the same thing to feed a crowd of thousands. So why not turn the stones to bread? Because that's not the point of the wilderness. The wilderness is about learning to trust God Jesus enters the wilderness in the recognition that even the Son of Man, the one to whom all authority is given, is completely dependent on God. Jesus has come to serve the Father, not to have the Father serve him. In this first test, we were reminded of the manna in the wilderness. Here, Israel had to learn to trust that God would give them what they needed for each day, no less and no more. The wilderness 
is not a place of abundance, but the place where we learn to trust. So what does Jesus say? He quotes the words of Moses to the people of Israel, saying, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As Israel was on the brink of leaving the desert after the 40 years, God gives Moses a word to give to Israel that they might remember the testing and the lessons that they learned in the wilderness. This comes from Deuteronomy. That word is, remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would be able to keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, exactly what kind of God is this? It would seem as though this is a God who is concerned about the righteousness, the holiness, the obedience of his people. It would seem as though this is a God who cares that the lives of his people are in harmony with the words of their mouth and the meditations of their hearts. It would seem as though this is a God who is willing to test and humble his people that they might learn that the integrity of their lives actually matters. In the wilderness, Israel learns that their lives are not sustained by their physical needs or appetites, their lives are sustained by their relationship with God. This is, in essence, what Jesus tells the adversary. He says, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Life itself is sustained by the word of God. Jesus tells the adversary, you're playing the wrong game. I haven't come to get mine. I haven't come to ensure that all of my appetites are satisfied. I haven't come with a list of entitlements. I've come to do the will of my Father. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The text continues. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this seems like an odd temptation What's the point? This just seems like a high risk, low reward kind of situation. The text doesn't imply that there are any large crowds around, so it doesn't seem to be about, you know, putting on a good show. I think the devil seems to be challenging Jesus' authority. He says, hey, if you're the son of God, if you're the real deal, we'll make your dad do some of the heavy lifting. After all, he seems to be really putting you through the ringer. Why don't you make him serve you for a change? Jesus again takes his reply from Deuteronomy and he says, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
He reiterates, I have not come to be served. I have come to serve. The authority that Jesus carries does not entitle him to be served. His authority comes from his capacity to serve. And lastly, the adversary comes with his final test. It reads, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. To me, this final test has always seemed funny because it just seems so on the nose. Knowing how the story ends, this just doesn't seem like much of a temptation. Knowing that in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus will have the final say, it seems funny that this could even be a consideration, let alone a temptation. But imagine you don't know how the story ends. After all, this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry. The adversary comes to Jesus and offers him dominion without the struggle, control without the pain, without the work, without the tears, without the frustration, without the feeling of being misunderstood. Now that's tempting to seize power, authority, influence, glory, without having to subject himself to the cross. If the end is the same, do the means really matter? Again, Jesus calls on the words of Moses from Deuteronomy. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve only him turns out that the means do not justify the end. In the end, Jesus will rule over all things, not because he wills himself to power, not because he seized the right opportunity, but because he walks in obedience, because he has clean hands and pure heart, and this he has tested in the wilderness. The thread of temptation that runs through each of these tests is for control. When the tempter offers that Jesus turns the stones to bread, he invites Jesus to introduce a little agency, a little control. You must be hungry. Why don't you just solve your own problem? It'll be quicker, a little more convenient. When he comes to Jesus again, suggesting that he throw himself down and forcing the Father to save him, he introduces the idea that the Father can be made to bend to Jesus' will, that the Son might have authority over the Father, that Jesus might exercise some control in his relationship. And when the adversary comes to him this final time, he offers Jesus the easy way out. Do it your way. Exercise a little control over your kingdom. In each of these cases, Jesus experienced the same temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness to act not out of obedience, but out of self-interest. 
After all, why would you risk not having enough for tomorrow if you can just collect a little extra manna for today? Sure, God has made his promises, but if my way is quicker and more convenient, why should I subject myself to the wilderness, to the waiting, to the suffering, to the pain? Because, Jesus says, those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. In submitting to the adversary, Jesus may have gained an earthly kingdom, but it would have been merely a shadow of the true kingdom. Through this story, we learn yet again that the movement of the power of this world is not the way that power moves in the kingdom of God. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The movement of power in the kingdom of God seems upside down in contrast to the power of the world. The power of the kingdom of God says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. This kind of power may just take you to the wilderness. And maybe this morning you feel like you're in the wilderness. Maybe you feel like you're in a barren land. I wanna encourage you this morning. And by that, I don't just mean I wanna give you kind words that maybe make you feel a little better about your situation. I mean, I want to give you courage in the wilderness. You have not been abandoned in the wilderness to fend for yourself. The wilderness is not a place of meaningless trials and temptations. The wilderness is a place of preparation. God was preparing Israel for the promised land. God was preparing Jesus for the reign of a new kingdom. God is preparing you to walk in obedience. If you feel like you find yourself in the middle of the testing, Hear the words of Paul this morning. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the adversary. Like Jesus, the spirit of God is with you in empowering you to live lives of righteousness, to live lives of obedience. You are being prepared for the new kingdom. As Moses reminds Israel, remember the lessons that you learn here. Remember the things that you're learning in the wilderness. This is the place where God starts a new thing in you. And maybe this morning, you're sensing that you've been tested, but that you've bent to the whims of the powers of this world. Maybe you feel as though you failed the testing. Like Israel, maybe you feel like you've put your trust in the wrong gods, the wrong kingdoms. Do you know what Jesus' first words were after the wilderness experience? He says, repent. 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, turn. You were looking for the kingdom over there and it's not over there, it's over here. Repent. You don't have to stay where you are. Now this isn't going to be a particularly easy path after all, he says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. But this path of ob obedience isn't merely the shadow of the kingdom, it's the real thing. It's a kingdom that does not perish. It's water that satisfies. To be a people of this story is to be a people with a name. Our name is Christian, followers of Christ. And this story is a strange one that will take us to strange places. It's a story that will have its way with us. It will change us. It will transform us. And it's a story that you can expect will lead us into the wilderness but it's also a story that's bringing us into the kingdom of God. You are being prepared in the wilderness. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Would you stand and join us in prayer? God, this morning we come to you and maybe some of us feel like we're in the wilderness. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Maybe we're prone to complaining. Help us. Teach us what it is to rely on you. Would you give us courage? Remind us that you are near to us, that you are not far off. Empower us to walk in holiness today to walk in your righteousness, to walk in your paths, to walk in your obedience. We come to you in repentance today. Teach us to turn, to walk away from our old selves and to walk towards you. Give us courage. Guide us by your spirit. Teach us that we are a people of an odd story called to do things that the world thinks is strange. We love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.